But if you have your Bible, I want you to open up to Acts chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 26 through 40. Acts chapter 8, 26 through 40. We're coming to a story in our passage, we've been talking about how in the, in the book of Acts, we've been seeing these different, uh, we've been tracing the stories and we're in the second season right now of the book of Acts. But a little different from the first season, the first season kind of followed the apostles straight through and we kind of walked along with Peter as he was different, doing different things. In the second season, we kind of keep looking at these small one-off stories. And this morning, we're going to be in a story that's completely beautiful, marvelous, wonderful, that's demonstrating all that goes on when someone is called to place their faith in Jesus. Everything that God does and is orchestrating behind the scenes to create these divine opportunities in order for the servants of the Lord to obediently proclaim Christ to those who are lost outcasts. It's this mesmerizing, beautiful story that we look and say, wow, look at all of these details. Look at everything that God is doing. But I, I want to offer a personal, tragic confession. That so often when I come to stories like this, or when I know a pastor is going to be preaching from a passage like this, I look at it and I'm, I, I, I'm already like apprehensive. Oh boy, this is a story about evangelism. I know what's going to happen. I'm going to I'm going to leave guilty th- t- today. I'm going to leave feeling like, "Oh man, yeah, I got to do better sharing the gospel because that's clearly what this is about." Or or I feel self-conscious. Man, it would it would be cool to have a story of conversion like that. I I would share that story, but but I was saved as a kid. I was a, a good person already. I, I, I want one of those better testimonies. I don't know if some of you went to camps and you would go to camps and there was always that person that would share their testimony that was like, well, yeah, I mean, that should be shared. I mean, they were saved. They were a drug addict. They were involved in all of these things and God changed them and it totally transformed their life. I mean, that's, that's a conversion story to like miraculous to share about. Mine, mine's common. Or maybe you're thinking you're here and and you actually don't know what you think yet about the Bible. You're not sure what you think about all of this information and and you're a little bit on the defensive right now because you're like, all right, this pastor is going to clearly say like, hey, this is the only way to God. This is the only thing that you have to believe. And and you're looking and you're like, oh man, okay, let me get prepared for this. The, The tragedy is that we miss the beauty of what God's doing And we see it as something common. We don't perceive how amazing and how miraculous it is each and every time God uses his servants to reach the lost outcasts that all of us were at some point. The tragedy that we look at our blessed privilege of being part of his plan and we say, ah, I just feel guilty about that. 
See, my goal today is not that you would, we would leave guilty in regards to our evangelism, but rather we would be encouraged with the great privilege and blessing of being part of God's plan. My desire is not that you would be self-conscious about your conversion story, but to reveal the wonder and beauty of what God has done in each of our lives who have placed our faith in Jesus. My hope is not to put you on the defensive because of what you don't understand or yet believe, but invite you to take a closer look at the good news of Jesus. See, what I want us to do this morning is to marvel at God's sovereign plan that uses obedient servants to reach lost outcasts. This is a story like no other. It's the story of the lost being redeemed, of those who were before enemies now part of the plan, of a sovereign God who was sinned against, who is now saving. Marvel at God's sovereign plan that uses obedient servants to reach lost outcasts. Here's what we're going to do as we go through this passage. As we go through each part, we're going to focus on these three different characters that we see in this story. We're going to see the character and sovereignty of God. We're also going to look at the obedience and role of God's faithful servants. We're also going to see then the response and result of the lost outcast who is found and saved. Let's look at the first part of this, looking at verses 26 through 31. Let's see this divine appointment. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians who is in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah and Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This first part of the passage reveals how God is orchestrating all of these details in order that there would be this meeting that for us would look like this chance meeting between Philip the evangelist and this eunuch who's on his way back to his country. But there's some elements of this that I I want us to, to focus on. Some of the questions we ask as we're going through books of the Bible, we don't just look at one passage here in Acts and the next week I'm going to be in some other passage because I want to look at some principle. We look at these things according to the entire book. But one of my questions when we come to this passage is, how does this fit in Acts? It kind of breaks the pattern of what we've been seeing. So far, what Luke has been demonstrating is how these different parts fit into the bigger picture. Hey, you want to know Theophilus, the one that he's writing to? Do you want to know Theophilus, how the church reached the ends of the earth? Do you want to see how God powerfully used his people as witnesses through the world? Okay, let me trace this out. Let's start in Jerusalem. Let's see how this expands out and what the people do there. And each story that we saw in that first section, even if it was focusing on an individual, we could say, oh, wait, 
when they did that with the cripple, that led to them being confronted by the leaders. It led to thousands coming to Christ. We see how that fits. Oh, wait, later when we see this problem in the church and they choose the seven, that's because God is saying it's through the church that we're going to do this. That makes sense. We understand where the church is going to go. Oh, when we see Stephen who is, is stoned and put to death, we understand how that fits because it causes the dispersal that people keep going on. Even last week or two weeks ago, when we saw what Philip does in Samaria, and then Peter and John come and it shows that as the spirit is given to them, God is continuing his plan. But then you come to this story and it looks like a dead end. Do we ever hear about the eunuch again? No. Do we find out later that there was this massive revival that happened in Ethiopia because of this individual? No. Some church history, some people think that that did happen, but we don't know from scripture do we see that this is introducing Philip, that Philip's going to keep on doing all these other works? No, this is our second to last time we hear about Philip. The next time we hear is way later when he's in Caesarea and he has all of his daughters and Saul, now Paul, visits him. So, so why does this story fit into the book when it seems like it's a dead end? Because it's revealing the truth about God's character and God's plan. We're seeing something greater. We're seeing fulfillments of prophecies that were long foretold. Here's some of the things I want us to just see about God. What we see first is God's authority. God commands Philip through an angel to rise and go toward the south. It is God's privilege, it's God's right to tell his servants what to do. He tells Philip, rise and go, because God has authority. But we also see there, because of what God is commanding, we see God's commitment to a process. What is the process that God is committed to? That his servants would be his witnesses. I think sometimes we forget how strange of an idea that is. What do we see at the very beginning of the passage? What, what messenger is God using to go to Philip? Right there, third word. An angel. Angels are messengers from the Lord. God sends a messenger to Philip and tells Philip, rise and go, and we know that he's going to rise and go and meet this Ethiopian eunuch. It's going to beg, a qu what's the question that we would ask? God, why not just send the angel to the Ethiopian eunuch? That seems a little simpler of a process. God, wait a second, what are you doing here? You're, you're taking Philip, where's Philip at this point? Where was he in our last passage? He's in Samaria. What's happened in Samaria? All these people are coming to Christ. A great multitude. Is Philip in a fruitful ministry? And God's going to pull him out of that? For one guy? Why not just send the angel to the eunuch? Because God is committed to the process that he ordained. Who will be 
the witnesses of God to the lost outcasts, God's servants, us, saved sinners. That's amazing. With all that is at God's disposal, with all of the things that he has, the perfect son, Christ, that he has the holy scriptures, and yet he chooses to use fallen sinners like us. Do we understand that God's choice for his evangelism is that it is carried out by his servants? I said we weren't going to go into the whole guilt side of this. But sometimes I think we say, ah, God's got this. God, God, God can, and can God do anything he wants? Yes, but what has God chosen to do? He's chosen to do it through us. We also see, though, God's sovereignty in orchestrating all of these details to encounter this lost outcast. All of these things, this chance meeting, which, of course, is not a chance. It was divinely appointed. It was ordained by God because why? God is sovereign. He weaves all of the threads of our stories in order to produce that tapestry that is beautiful for his glory. We saw this when we were going through the book of Ruth, didn't we? All of these details that God started putting together that revealed his plan of redemption. We're seeing that here. Polling Philip, who was an, a Greek Jew in Jerusalem, who then is sent out because of persecution, who goes to Samaria, who then God calls to all the way down to the south in order to find this one. God is pulling all of these threads together. He is sovereign. But I think what we also see about God is God's profound love for the lost. Some of the things that I think that we misunderstand is that we look at, at God as just being pragmatic. God only cares about the, the, the end result. What's going to bring the most people? Do you know how many ministries and, and how much there is a temptation for me to just be thinking, okay, but what gets me the most? Okay, what, what can cause this church to grow the biggest? What, what allows me to be the most fruitful? And understand, there are elements of that that matter, but what matters more than that is faithfulness. But what we see here, because could we be tempted as we read through Acts to be like, okay, what God really likes is the multitudes. Oh, he did this and the thousand people came. And then over here, 5,000 people came. And then he did this big and beautiful, like that's the one. Those are the stories that God cares about. Where did God pull Philip from? A fruitful place. Where did he send him? Look right in the first ver in verse 26. Rise and go south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. And what does Luke say? This is a desert place. This is what Luke 15 says about the character of our God. 
is a parable that Jesus is telling his followers. What man of uh, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, "Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost." Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What does God love? God loves seeing lost sinners found. He loves the one. If you're here and you're thinking even about your own story and your conversion story and saying, ah, just wasn't that special. Like I was a kid. I came to Christ. It wasn't that big of a deal. You're the one lost sheep. You were the lost outcast that God pursued and divinely appointed. We have no idea all of the things that God orchestrated in order that you might hear the gospel and place your faith in him. Can you imagine when we get to heaven and God opens the book and says, okay, let's trace your salvation story. Let's bring it out. Okay, because does the Ethiopian eunuch know all that God has done to get Philip there in that place? No. He doesn't know any of that. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when we reach heaven and God says, okay, you had no idea all the threads, everything I had to put into place so that you would become mine. Because you were the one that was lost who I wanted to be found. See, do we see when we look at stories of evangelism and conversion, sometimes I think we are so self-centered and human-focused that we miss the glory of what God is doing. Everything that he's putting into place, this is God's story. It's his authority. It's his decision for the process to use his servants. It's his sovereignty that orchestrates everything to happen. It's his love that pursues. But look at Philip now. What do we see in the example of Philip for this first section? First, we see obedience, right? What does it say? Rise and go toward the south. And then verse 27, he what? rose and went. At this church, we have gone through a certain book several times, whether through word partners or preaching it through here, the book of Jonah. Jonah, rise and go where I told you. And he went down, away, and hid from the, in the, the ship. That's not the way that a servant is meant to respond to its Lord, his Lord. This is what we're supposed to do, what Philip does, obedience. God sends a messenger to tell him, rise and go, and Philip rose and went. This is what we are called to do. This is our place to be willing participants in what God is doing. But we also see a different element in, in Philip. We see his trust. If you were Philip, would you be confused by what God was doing? God, do, did you not just see all of these people that were baptized, that received the Holy Spirit? And God, there's more here. The, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. When, God, when Jesus told his disciples that, do you know where he was? In Samaria. 
And here's Philip in Samaria. He's seeing the harvest and God says, I want you to go somewhere else. I want you to go to this place out in the middle of nowhere in the desert. And Philip would have known that's a desert place. No one lives there. And God, did Philip say, God, I don't, I don't think your plan is right. Let me, let, me, uh, let me go somewhere else. Maybe on a boat, swallowed by a whale. I don't know, something like that. No, Philip rises and goes because he trusts God. But we also see Philip's commitment. Look what it says when, when he's going in, in verse 29. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And Philip's like, all right. I mean, I, I guess, like, God, I, I'm already kind of tired. It was a long journey to get here. What is it? How does it describe what Philip does? So Philip ran. Philip runs to this chariot. He runs to join. He asks the questions, what are you reading? He can hear the, the, the eunuch reading out loud God's word. And he says, hey, do you understand this? He's committed to the mission that God has given him. See, this is our great privilege. So how often do we look at these opportunities for evangelism and we're like, oh God, I don't, that's awkward. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to go through this process. We're wasting everything that God has put into place. He's already done all the work. He's already orchestrated the details to be aligned. He's already put everything into motion. He's just asking for obedience, for submission, for commitment. This is a privilege for us. I, I want us to leave not thinking, oh man, gotta go do it. No, be excited for what God's doing that you get to play a part in. Whose story is this? Who gets the glory for what's happening in this passage? God does. We're going to get to the end. And when we see all of these things, I don't know if you ever get to, to see the, like, these incredible um, works of art. Maybe, maybe you go and watch an incredible play and you're like, man, I wish I had gotten to be a part of that. Like that looks so cool. Oh, you guys did this. You built this. You, you, you finished this. Man, I wish I could have been a part of that. Look at the story of redemption that God is writing. And he says, hey, I want you to be a part of this. I want you to be a piece of what I'm doing. Should our motivation in that be guilt or joy at the privilege of being part of what he's doing? One of the elements that has been a personal discovery for me is, is that my motivation for evangelism is often anemic. There, there's a lack of health often in my motivation for evangelism. What are some of the common reasons that we share the gospel? One is a sense of responsibility and duty. God told me to do this. He told us we are to be his witnesses. Therefore, this is what I've been told. It's a command. I must do it. That is part of our motivation. Another motivation we'll talk about often is, is pity for the lost. Look, these people need to hear salvation. The, the, the harvest is great, but the labors are few. There are people going to hell that need to hear about Christ. So there's a pity for the lost. There's that motivation. But the one that's missing for me often 
is because I want to make God happy. That I want him to have joy in what I know gives him joy. If I could illustrate this, uh, this last week we had a holiday on Wednesday. What holiday? Valentine's Day. John, Richie, and I drove down to meet with a pastor for lunch, and that was what we did for the day. Um, it only happened after where I was like, oh, maybe that wasn't the right day to schedule this. I probably maybe should have done something with Hannah, but missed it. But that morning, <laughs> made up for it, um, that morning I come down, like we're, we're doing things, we're up, and my kids are so excited because they got these different gifts for me that they want to express that they love me. Judah is jumping on his toes. He's like, you want to open what I got you right now? And he got me this mug with a stuffed animal T-Rex that was inside of it that says, you are terrific. He was so excited because in his words, I would love it. And I did. He wanted to give me something that he knew would produce joy in my life. Why? Because he loved me. What does Luke say happens when a lost sheep is found? I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. How many of my motivations for evangelism stem from a negative view instead of the positives of saying, I love God so much. I love what he has done for me so much that if I can just do this tiniest thing of proclaiming him, that he might use that in part of his plan to produce what gives him the most joy of seeing lost people saved. Not that I'm doing that, not that I'm saving anyone, but that I'm doing my part that God has called me to and it produces joy for him. Instead of looking at opportunities with dread and apprehension, thinking, God, Is this what you're going to use to produce so much joy in heaven? That's a different perspective for us. To think that this is what we can do for the one who has done everything for us. But then we come to the Ethiopian in this section. The outcast. First thing we see is that he is a foreigner and he's an outcast. Now it's not sure if he was a Jew or not, the reason that we aren't sure about that is because later when Cornelius is saved in chapters 10 and 11, Luke calls him the first Gentile convert. And so there might be an element where this is one, a a Jewish descent who has moved to Ethiopia a long time before. That could be it. We don't know. But what Luke does present him as is a foreigner. Here is a Ethiopian. Someone that would be on the outside. Beyond that, how does it describe him? A eunuch. This is someone that had been castrated. It was a common practice for those who served in the royal royal kingdoms that they would be castrated as they served. So this is a person who, what is it saying? He has come up to Jerusalem to worship. So in some way, he's a God-fearer but he doesn't understand. 
One of the other elements, though, is that after he had done this long journey, hundreds of miles from where he lived, to go up to Jerusalem to worship, do you know what one of the tragic things is? When he got there, he would have been barred from the temple. He would not, after that long journey, be allowed to go into that place to worship. Here's why. In Deuteronomy 23.1, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of God. That was the law. This man who had gone all of this effort to do these things, he's an outcast. He's barred from the presence. That's all of our realities. What happened at the fall? One of the realities of the temple was a reminder of different sections where you can't come here. The holy of holies was one for everyone. You can't come here. But there were different requirements of you are unclean. You can't even come into this outer part. It was a reminder of all of our condition before a holy God. You can't come here. You are a foreigner for this kingdom. You are outcast from God's presence. But we see that this individual, this Ethiopian, he's striving and searching. He's gone on this journey of hundreds of miles. He's searching for the truth. What is he doing as he's riding back in his chariot? He's sitting down. He's already done this pilgrimage. He's got the, 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 the scroll, not a Bible like this. He would have the scroll of Isaiah and he's reading it. He's reading it out loud. Often people would read it out loud just even because they didn't have punctuation like we do. And so in reading it out loud, it would help you kind of figure out the structure of the sentence. And it was the common practice. So, so he's reading it. Why? Because he wants to know what the truth is. He's striving for it. But we also see his honesty and humility because when Philip comes next to him and he says, hey, do you understand? How can I? How can I unless someone guides me? I, I don't know what this is saying. I, I want to find the truth, but it's out of my reach. The wisdom of God still seems like folly to me. And all of us were in that condition. All of us were in a place where we said, I don't get it. And we needed someone to show us what it is. But So he's not only honest that he doesn't get it, he's humble. He asks Philip, Come up here. Sit with me. Can you show me what this says? Again, this is demonstrating the process that God has ordained for lost outcasts to find Christ. Romans 10, 11 through 15 says this, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. We're seeing an example of this here, where the foreign outcast, we're going to see him saved here. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then here's the question that Paul develops. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? 
As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So here's Philip ready to preach the good news to this lost outcast. And and I want to just take a quick moment. If you're here and you're still not sure about this book, you're still not sure about this truth, I would encourage you to follow the example of this Ethiopian. Strive to find the truth. Search for the truth in Scripture. Then be humble and honest to say, I still don't get all of this. Would you help me? If you're in that place after, in the lobby, I'm going to have some books. It's a small book. It doesn't take long. It's just, who is Jesus? It's an incredible book that just takes you to the scripture and says, this is who Jesus is. It's what Philip's going to do in this passage. But, but I'm not just going to offer that to you and say, just read it on your own. If you want to read that, if you want someone to read it with you, if you want to talk about it, I'm willing. Most of the people here are willing to do that with you. Because it is, it is the greatest decision you will ever make. It will produce joy, not just in God, for God, but in your life, as we'll see in this passage. Here's the principle. God sovereignly orchestrates opportunities for his servants to obediently share the good news to lost outcasts. God's the one that's doing this. He's orchestrating all of these opportunities, but what? Is it just that God's gonna do it and we just get to sit back and watch and like, oh, that's cool. No, he does it so that we can participate. So we can share the good news to lost outcasts. Let's look at this next part. Let's see this faithful proclamation in verses 32 through 35. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. I I, want to just pause real quick there. For us, As New Testament saints who have the privilege of the whole Bible, we read that passage and who do we think about instantly? Jesus. Oh, it's it's the passage, the famous passage that we read every Good Friday, Isaiah 52 through 53, this idea, this, this song about the suffering servant. Oh, this is about Jesus. How perfect of a passage for this man to be reading. That's not the connection they were making back then. It it still was unclear. Wait, who's this about? What's this saying? This is what the eunuch says to Philip. About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? What's this about? And then Philip says something incredibly surprising when you consider the verses that were just read. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him what? The good news about Jesus. Read that passage again. What part of that seems like good news? Like a sheep, he was led to his slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? From his life is taken away, for his life is taken away from the earth. Does that sound like good news? But it is, in fact, the best news. 
See, what we see when we look at this passage of what we see about God is that God sent his only son to suffer in our place because he loved us. Again, we see the love of God. We see the wisdom of God. Who could fathom that this would be good news and the means of our salvation, that the suffering of the servant would mean salvation for the nations? What we see here is God's sovereign plan. This was all foretold. One of the incredible elements that we're going to see is how God is going to connect things. I want to invite you, open up to Isaiah. Go to this passage that we're, we have. This is in Isaiah 52 and 53. What we see in the rest of the passage is that surely he has borne our griefs carried our transgressions. Verse five, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed and we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But what does God do for lost sheep? He brings them back. This is good news because the suffering servant brings salvation but what's part of the question we might still have for this individual? When we read this in context, we think of, he did this for Israel. This is, this is the suffering servant to save Israel. How is this still good news for this foreign outcast? Jump over to Isaiah 56. 56 verse three. This is why this is good news, not just for Israel, but for all nations. Isaiah 56, verse three. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him beside those already gathered. What are we seeing here in Acts 8? We're seeing the fulfillment of Isaiah 56. God said, I'm going to bring you in. You who have been cast out. You who were told you can't come into the presence. I'm going to bring you to my holy mountain. I am going to allow you into my presence. You who have no hope of continuing your name because you have been castrated. I will give you a better name. How incredible to see the love of God that looks at the outcast and says, I have a plan for you. What do we call that? Good 
news. But how is all of this accomplished? How does Philip say all of this will happen? Is it through the prophet Isaiah? No, it's good news about Jesus. Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is the one who died in our place. He did the work we could not do. And now Philip is saying, look at what he's done for you. This is all part of the sovereign plan. But again, how does this happen? Because Philip faithfully proclaims. He relies on the Holy Scripture. He says, this is what the Scripture means. He had knowledge and understood what the Word said. But, but let me just say this. Rely on the Holy Scriptures, not human skill. Too often, we don't share because we think, I just don't have all the skill I need to convince someone. Your job is not to convince anyone. That's not your job. Your job is to be a witness to what Christ has said. Philip doesn't go and say, all right, let me, let me show you this five-step plan of evangelism. No, no Philip says, you want to know what you're reading? You want to know what this means? Uh, in our e uh, church email, uh, uh, maybe a week ago, two weeks ago, we shared a praise uh, for Betsy Sayer, who had an opportunity in her office. And she was talking to me about it. She had, she was going, uh, they were going in and she was talking to her boss um, and her boss had said, yeah, I've tried to read the Bible several times. I just don't get it. And then they went right into the meeting and they did the meeting and, and Betsy is sitting in the meeting praying, thinking, God, how would you use this? They finish the meeting. She goes up to her boss and says, hey, I can explain the whole story of the Bible in two minutes if you'd like me to. Really? I'd love that. And she did. And she said, now, now please understand, sometimes we, we look at this and say, oh, that's impossible. You can't be faithful and all that. And no, she's saying, this is the core of the message. It's about who God is. It's about our fallenness as man. This is what Christ came to do and die for our sins and rose again and conquered and death. And this is how we must respond to that. She shares those things. And the conversation didn't end. Tell me more. And we're praying for more opportunities to do that. But that's not human skill. It's faithfulness to the Holy Scripture. It's saying this is what it means that you're trying to read and you don't understand. But that does require knowledge. It requires understanding what you believe. Can you tell someone what the gospel is? And then we not just being faithful, not just knowledge, we need to proclaim it. He did not keep what had been revealed to him to himself. Again, then we see the outcast and he's seeking for answers. He's asking, what does this mean? And God has placed him, someone there to show what it is. Here's a principle for us. Our salvation is only possible because Christ is the suffering servant who was slaughtered for our sins. Therefore, we need to proclaim that truth. There is no other way. This is the only way that the outcast who is lost is found. Let's see the public profession that we then see. 
And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Truth that we see here is that this is from God. It's a God ordained and command that those who are in Christ would publicly profess the reality that they have received through baptism. This is God's design. That those who have said, I have a new identity. If that's what Christ has done, I have placed my faith in Christ alone. And then when we are baptized, we are baptized into his death and brought out in his resurrection to identify ourselves with Christ. Now understand, that's not what saves us. But it's revealing to the world that we are saved. It's saying, I identify with Christ. This is my Savior. Philip here is the representative and gatekeeper in in the sense that what does the eunuch say? He asks, what would keep me from being baptized? Now, Now, this is one of the realities that we need to understand when we're talking about baptism. Baptism is a two way relationship. Baptism is not someone that says, I want to be baptized. I'll go dunk myself. I've been baptized. Baptism is not, I want to be baptized, pastor. You must baptize me. Baptism is saying, I would love to be baptized. Would you baptize me? Now the question that he asks, what would prohibit me? If Philip said, you're not a believer. You have not placed your faith in Christ. Do you think Philip would still baptize him? No. That's why for us here at this church, when someone says, I would like to be baptized, what we first go through is, do you understand the gospel? Are you truly in, do you truly have a new identity as you're trying to profess this identity? You can't profess a new identity without already having that new identity. And this is the humility of the eunuch that asks, what would prohibit Would you baptize me? And they go down, they walk into the water. This is why we do practice full immersion because of of what we see in examples like this and other places in scripture. And they baptize him. What we're seeing here is that this faith is transformative. It's changing the decisions of this man. He's choosing to obey because what did God tell us with the Great Commission? Go and make the disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. This is part of what we are called to do as believers. If we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we are meant to publicly profess that. Our role as a church is for those who are truly in Christ. Our role is to bring them out and baptize them so that they can do that. See, our principle is those who place their faith in Christ for salvation must also publicly profess their allegiance to Christ through baptism. We come to the end, though, of seeing how this transformed, what has happened in this story has completely transformed the existence of both Philip and the eunuch. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself as at Azotus and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. What we first see about the outcast, he comes out of the water and what does he do? He goes on his way, what? Rejoicing. I just need to ask all of us here, 
are we still going on our way rejoicing? Do we understand that we were the lost outcast who has now been welcomed into the presence of a holy God? If we understand that, what should that look like as we go on our way? Rejoicing. We see for Philip, it's transformed him as well. Philip is carried away. It sounds like in some ways he was transported. This is a miraculous event. But what does Philip do? He continues preaching the gospel wherever he goes. Now, do we think that it's because Philip keeps on having these occurrences where he audibly hears the Holy Spirit say, hey, uh, wait on this corner of the road because there's a chariot coming and you're gonna jump into it. Okay, and now, Philip, I want you to go over here. No, that probably didn't keep happening. But what did Philip keep doing? He kept preaching and proclaiming Christ wherever God placed him. But what we see from God here is that God has a divine purpose and he has a gift that he gives for his glory. He calls his servants to do what he has told them to do. He gives those who are lost the gift of his grace for their their salvation. Our principle is that the future of those redeemed is forever transformed because of their newfound joy and purpose in Christ. And so the question is, are we living According to that, are we living as if our future, because we are redeemed, is forever transformed because of the joy of what we found in Christ and the purpose we have in him? How do we respond to stories like this? Do we just fall into the idea, oh no, Acts is only about the big and the glamorous, the big stories, do we fall into the trap that looks and says, ah, I'm not gonna, I don't, evangelism, that I just, it scares me. I feel guilty about it, but how do we respond to this story? Do we see the marvel of God's sovereign plan that uses obedient servants to reach lost outcasts? Are we willing to join into that? Not because we're feeling guilty, but because we are full of joy and we want to be part of it. God's doing an incredible work. What a privilege that he allows us to be part of it. If you're still one of those who are lost, who have not been welcomed into God's presence, I would invite you, look at the story of the Ethiopian. Do what he does. If you are someone who has, was lost and outcast in the, before, but you have already been redeemed, first and foremost, marvel at your own story. The Ethiopian didn't know all the things that happened. You don't know all the things that happened in your story. But what you do know is that once you were lost, but now you are found. Marvel at that story and then joyfully join what God is calling you to do. Proclaim Christ. And for all of us, look at the glorious thing that God is doing in his plan to weave this tapestry and pull all these threads and tell a wonderful story. Marvel at God's sovereign plan that uses obedient servants to reach lost outcasts.